We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. On the streets of old Milwaukee was a young boy walking. Somebody needs to take this mic away from you. You never need to hold it again. It's always a hater in the group. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Brew Hoop Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Paris, co-managing editor of BrewHoop.com. And as per usual, I am just absolutely thrilled to be joined by uh, co-host Riley Feldman. Kyle Carr is out doing some family stuff tonight, taking precedent over the pod, as it always should be. But really, really happy to dive into these uh, whole host of mailbag questions that we were lucky enough to get. So how are you doing on this Sunday evening, Riley? I'm doing really good. And I'm doing doubly good because as is a time-honored tradition for all podcasts, we have outsourced all of the work of coming up of stuff to talk about to you guys, which we're uh, really appreciative. But we did get a good variety of questions from role player guys, the star guys, the coach, front office, whole bunch of stuff. So I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, really thank you to all of the people who follow us on Twitter and on Facebook and especially the Hoop comment section. You guys gave us a ton of stuff to chew on. Really excited to dive in because Lord knows I had nothing else to really talk about. Uh, we didn't want to spend any more time on the Luke May uh, Exhibit 10 contract than was necessary. <laughs> I don't know why we didn't get any questions about that either. Yeah, it's it, that or, the, you know, we did get a couple of Dante questions, but it feels like the people who listen to the podcast might not understand the brand we're going for, which is exclusively Dante content. So we'll do our best to tackle and kind of cover up for that fact. But you're right that it's a little disturbing that not enough Luke May questions, but probably for the best since Kyle isn't here to give us his uh, his nuanced and <laughs> well-meaning takes on Luke May's basketball career. That's true. Yeah, I'm re- we should definitely get him a Luke May uh, herd jersey for yeah. Christmas <laughs> or something. Everybody, yeah, we can crowdfund that. Like, There's a lot of different things on uh, Kickstarter that are worthy of people's money, but I think getting Kyle Carr a custom Luke May jersey might be the top for sure. I, I think that has to be there. And it, as you said, we are kind of a Dante pod, and I think it would be – ill-fitting of us to not start with a Dante-focused, slightly Dante-focused question. So let's get into this. And of course, we're going to start with questions about the role players, because what's more important than that? So this comes from at uh, Mr. Official 44, uh, Tom on Twitter. Um, or I think in the group comment section. Um, I don't remember. Sorry, Tom. Uh, what areas of their <laughs> game can Connaughton, Brown, Wilson, and DiVincenzo improve upon? And he has sort of a second piece there. Uh, I understands that they don't all play the same position, but can Matthews and Corver, along with the improvement of the guys that I just sort of listed off above, offset the Brogdon loss? So let's run through those role players first, Riley. Uh, why, don't, why don't you start with, with Connaughton, Brown, Wilson, DiVincenzo? What's some stuff that you might have picked out and believe that they could improve upon this next year? So the way that I looked at this when I was kind of doing a little bit of research these past couple of days, um, I've kind of moved away from doing the most optimistic scenario like Sterling Brown will definitely become a good ball handler and then he'll fill in Malcolm Brogdon for example so I just thought of each guy what is it that they can do as a role player like that's just slightly better than not to be perfect because they're never going to be but so kind of going from that perspective I, I went through so Connaughton in this regard it's it's very similar to a season go where it's just simply can you stay ready um I think the here today, gone tomorrow, minute allocation of a year ago is going to be uh, very similar this upcoming season, just given how many players there are. I would like to see his three-point percentage increase. He was at 33% last year. Uh, his career average is 349 
Um, though I do understand that can be tough because three-point shooting is kind of hit or miss. And with his high three-point attempt rate, which was 57.1% of his shot attempts last year, it's kind of tough to do. But overall, I would say if there's one area that I would really like him to improve, it's probably defensively, which is a little tough to overcome because unless there's like marketed increases in his lateral quickness or his actual like athleticism besides lifting with Giannis all the time, I don't know what he can do to really <laughs> offset that per se. But if I was to circle anything out for Pat, it would probably be that. How about yourself? Yeah, I sadly had circled around to exactly the same thing. I'm certainly interested in the three-point shooting. I was curious if it would hold up this last year after his first that year in Portland, that sort of breakout year was really the first time he had shot any sort of volume, a nice volume of three-pointers. Uh, but I think just defensive, honestly, a little bit of aptitude and uh, I would say discipline for him. I think we all know occasionally he'll have those crazy blocks where he jumps, leaps up in the air and makes a huge uh, block and turns it around on the other end for a transition basket. But it feels like more often than not, he's the guy who's vaulting all the way into the stands, making people spill their beer because he's trying to block a shot from some crazy spot. Sort of quietly too, if you look at the cleaning the glass numbers, um, when he was on the floor, uh, the other team was plus 4.9 in terms of points per possession, which was basically like second worst on the team among all rotation players. He was like right around Sterling Brown was a little worse at plus 5.4. And he was always sort of his on off. It was kind of weird last year. Um, so I, I, you know, you can't always, that does, you can't always read into those sort of numbers, but I think that points to the fact that like you, like you were talking about, there's some areas of improvement that he could do defensively. Uh, maybe not. He doesn't have, I, I think, I think discipline really for him is the place where he can go. Cause in terms of athleticism and lateral quickness, like what you were saying, it, it's highly doubtful at this point that he's going to improve markedly in those areas. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have to be realistic. He's a guy who's being paid like $1.5 million. Yeah. And the fact that we got as much out of him as he did last year is, you know, way beyond my expectations. So, you know, small improvements here or there, but I think what we saw last year is what we can expect next year as well. Yeah. What, what about for uh, Sterling Brown, something you're looking at for him? It's kind of tough because I think of all the guys that are on the roster, he's and maybe it's kind of sacrilege, but he seems like the most obvious guy to step up in Malcolm's Brog or Malcolm Brogdon's absence because he already kind of filled that role last year when Malcolm was injured. And really what I would like to see him do is, you know, ideally like become a better ball handler. But if there was one thing that I would like him to focus on, it would just be be more restricted to your three and D role, which I think he's going to end up having to do anyhow because of the way that the starting lineup is going to end up playing. Um, and if there's something he can do that's different than just being strictly three and D and probably be having more willingness or have, a, you know, work on your craft of actually getting to the rim and drawing contact. Because if we could see slight free throw rates, increase and in percentages increase i think that would be positive insofar as that would take the load off of Giannis's shoulders a little bit because right now you know you do have eric out there but once you get past the starting lineup there's not a lot of guys on the roster who are really known for banging in the paint and i think brown um just because of his athleticism has the best possibility of doing that but i would say limited role excel in that limited role and then if you need something a little bit extra a little bit towards the basket as well would be great yeah i'm really interested in brown i as you were talking about him being the most obvious guy to fill Brogdon's role, it definitely makes sense to me. But I also, it, 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 like, it made me cringe a little bit. Um, and I think we're definitely going to get into this point when we talk about all these people trying to fill in for Malcolm Brogdon. It's like the same conversation we would have had if Chris Middleton had left, um, just to a slightly smaller degree. It's like you can't make a Megazord and out of like five different players. Like you had 
one player who could do all these kind of things and had a lot of versatility. And I trust that these guys will be able to fill in, but I don't know if like having all of them hope for improvement in that regard is, is going to turn into a really quality Brogdon substitute. I think, I think I would really like to see um, Brown be a little bit better. Um, not necessarily like a huge playmaker, but even just like upping his assist numbers a little bit. Um, he showed a lot of improvement in the, in the playoffs. It was like, that, that series against the Pistons, you know, he had a couple games where he was at six or seven assists. I think if he was just showed just a little bit more aptitude, even if it's just a slight dribble drive in, um, and he obviously improved his finishing at the rim last year, but even if it's just like a slight dribble drive in and, and kick out, uh, I, I think just a little bit, little bit more savvy passing ability and ability to create off the dribble would be nice for Brown. So that's kind of what I'm hoping. Yeah, and like conceptually speaking, if he's in the starting lineup, let's just assume he could be like Dante or whoever else. But if he's in the starting lineup, he is naturally going to be the guy that gets the least amount of attention. And that opens up a lot of abilities where even if he is limited physically or like technique wise, he still should have a little bit more margin for error that the other four guys won't. And he should be able to take advantage of that. Yeah, absolutely. DJ Wilson is up next. I I think absolutely. It's been clear from the start. DJ Wilson just has been a a horrific finisher at the rim for a big. (laughs) I was going to say, I have that. I have that. That's number one highlighted on here for sure. Yeah, that's that one's number one with a with an absolute bullet. It's uh, I I mean, for a guy who's 6'10 and has a little bit of handle, uh, I mean, the fact that he was still only able to shoot 57 percent at the rim, that's in the 14th percentile among bigs per cleaning the glass. It's like. Oh boy, uh, that's just something you really hate to see out of a out of a guy with that size and ability to finish. And you would kind of hope, like I'm picturing, even you know how Urson has that thing where he like volleyball bats it off the rim or whatever, and somehow is like there for offensive rebounds and able to make it go in. Even yeah. if he like just learned that, that would be like enough for me. Yeah, I wonder how much of it has to do with like his physical stature because he is he's long, he's tall, but he's never really like thick per se. And Urson is a little bit thicker, I guess, and maybe our son's a little more savvy, but um, if I wasn't going to say just finishing around the rim, my other thing was either revamp your shot mechanic because he, for whatever reason, his <laughs> guiding hand holds the ball on top. It's like, it's a really <laughs> weird setup, and I think that limits his shooting ability. And then, like you said, if whether it be becoming more crafty in the paint, just kind of positioning-wise, or bulking up, because right now, if he's like an extreme you know, small ball five, or if he's even just doing like four minutes, there's guys in the league that'll be able to kind of push him around and take advantage. So those would be my two other things, which kind of feed back into, you know, he showed a lot defensively last year, which we like, but there's still a lot of work on offense to go before DJ Wilson being known as a, a, a franchise savior of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> his, Maybe that's a little shot, extreme, but <laughs> his, he does like contort his body. I think the most out of anyone on the team, even like his shot mechanics, it looks like it, it almost looks like he's like had to form himself into weird letters before, like as a cheerleader, um, like I, and his rebounding, he always contorts his body too. He has like, he just crazy, like flails himself around. And um, anyway, yeah. Um, well, I, and so, just one final thing, I agree. And it is hilarious to watch, but there is a way you could like theorize that that's an asset just because it makes him difficult to stay in front of or kind of work around because, you know, if you got this guy who's forming an L in the sky all the time, what do you supposed <laughs> to do about that? You know? So I, I think if there's a way he can work on his body control a little bit and make X's that actually help get rebounds uh, more consistently, then, you know, it's not a bad thing per se. Yeah. Um, let's hold off on Dante really quickly because uh, we have a question coming up here about him. So what do you think about the idea? Can these can these guys sort of along with Wesley Matthews and Kyle Korver fill in um, for Malcolm Brogdon this next year? 
like you said, it's a really fraught question because are we talking about the regular season or the postseason? And I think you and I both agree that it's a totally different question when you're talking about the playoffs and even maybe not the first or second round of the playoffs, but like the Eastern Conference Finals and the finals itself. Um, I think platoon-wise, they should be able to get it done because they were able to go, I think it was 11-6 and six, or maybe it was 12-6 and six when Malcolm was out last year. Um and they've shown the ability to kind of rotate who's going to be playing and on the wing or kind of combo guard situation and survive with it. But I think if we're going into the year kind of thinking that we're going to get similar levels of production from all these different guys to offset Brogdon, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. I think we need to be realistic that each of the guys are good. It's helpful that they're all on the team. They all kind of do things that are, you know, unique in their own way, but none of them combine kind of the all-around game that Malcolm had in that regard. I'm not too worried about the regular season, post, but postseason, I think, is giving me a major problem. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I would really recommend that anyone who has a, a subscription read Eric Name's excellent article about this very topic, uh, about sort of the he's using this this really great conceptual idea of whether the Bucks can kind of use money ball concepts, take some people who are like, who are good in all of these sort of areas that Malcolm Brogdon is and then fill in and, and be maybe the, the sum, the parts can be greater than the whole it was last year. I think the stuff that he pointed out that were really interesting was the just the willingness of, of guys like Wesley Matthews and Kyle Korver to shoot, and no matter if a defender's really close or far away. We all know that Malcolm Brogdon was a little particular with his shot selection when it came to from, from deep. Um, obviously, you know, I would never – say that he was holding off to try and get that, you know, have a better shot at that 50, 40, 90 or whatever. That would be the really incredible speculation. But the, just the fact that Wesley Matthews and Kyle Korver are, are incredibly willing shooters, um, I think is, a, I think is a, is a really important asset to this team and fits right in with the philosophy that, that Bud has talked about. So th- those are like two aspects of those players that I think are going to be really important in, in filling in for Brogdon. Yeah. And I think also, you know, an underrated part of Brogdon's game was the fact that you could, he wasn't, he is not, and was not a true point guard, but up until you got George Hill and when George Hill was injured as well, he was pretty reliable being a guy who could go out there with the substitutes and kind of coach the team through it essentially. Um, and I don't know if there's anybody on the roster, Dante, uh, ex- excluding Dante, we can kind of get into that depending on how optis- optimistic you are about him. But there's nobody else really on the roster that could step into that role, which I think might have longer term consequences for how healthy the top line guys are if they're having to do a little bit more work throughout the regular season to maintain such a high level of output that they did last year. Definitely agree. And, and hopefully DC Pack could put in a question about will the complementary pieces play better this year than last year. Uh, and hopefully we kind of got to that. Uh, in our, our our answers above. So let's move on. This one's from RT43 in the Brew Hoop comment section. Dante's ceiling. What are his chances of becoming the biggest addition to the team by virtue of simply playing real NBA minutes, of softening the blow sustained in the Brogdon trade? And these, these are even more important here, these questions. Yeah. Playing 10 years in the league, overtaking Blake Griffin as the top ginger in the league, or maybe even Davis Bertans. Um, the Blake Griffin one might be a long shot, but I don't want to put a ceiling on Dante at this point. Uh, I don't know about you. I think you were you were tweeting about how much we expect from him this year. What what were those numbers that you had thrown out? Uh, I don't remember saying that, but I do expect <laughs> things from him. Oh, oh yeah, from the. <laughs> Sorry, I totally misread that. Yeah, no, I was saying I prepped this uh, podcast with saying he might average thirty, fourteen, and twelve. How he was going to do that, I don't know, but he already has a segment on the uh, podcast. So it would be really disappointing if he did not 
but I think it should be noted that he's got a lot of pressure with Kevin Herter right up, you know, right on his heels. <laughs> One could argue maybe that Kevin Herter might be a little bit more advanced in his career than Dante is right now, but those two I think is going to be a matchup for years to come to see who comes out of that draft class as the better ginger. So it's something definitely we're going to have to watch this season. Well, yeah, that's a fantastic rivalry to think of. It, re- realistically, uh, I th- yes, I mean, actually, the the very idea of Dante playing real NBA minutes this year still kind of seems in doubt to me, given just the fact that they've He's been so, so cagey. Yeah, so healthy. <laughs> um, and so cagey with his injury thus far and held him out for, I mean, he only wound up playing 27 games last year. So I think that's probably still a little bit of an open question. I really liked some of the stuff I saw from him last year. It seems like he can be a, a semi-decent ball maker. Uh, playmaker in a pinch um, showed a little bit more ability than I thought that he would have trying to get to the rim. Uh, I really, it's going to come down to whether he can shoot or not, but I guess if there's something that I liked, just a small thing that I like about Dante that maybe looping back to the stuff that he could improve on and um, trying to fill in for Malcolm Brogdon is I thought he was a really good and willing passer, especially in transition. I know I like that in college from him and he would, he just gets the ball and he would, he could, he could pass it up to Giannis. He makes like really pretty decent passes up the court to guys who are who are pushing forward for transition buckets. That's such a huge part of the of Milwaukee's offense. And I think Malcolm Brogdon, probably more acutely than some other people, was certainly guilty of getting a little bit of tunnel vision when it came to transition plays. So that's something that Dante, I, th- I think, kind of has a little bit of an upper leg in that regard. Yeah, I think Dante right now, he's like the Rorschach test for all Bucks fans. Like you either like there's either the very optimistic take that what we saw in 27 games last year, which I shall say it, it was impressive at times, just the sheer amount as, as we all know, he does stuff. And so from a rookie, that's promising that he wasn't just like a total zero factor out there, but I think it is realistic to have some concerns about just what to expect from him next year. So in, if we were kind of circling back on what I'd like to see improve from him, maybe do less stuff, but in doing less stuff, focus on a couple of specific areas to excel in. Um, Especially because I wonder, given his foot injury, you know, can we expect him to be skying for rebound attempts? Can we be expecting him flying around on defense, trying to just kind of, you know, annoy shooters, for example, or can we expect him to kind of like lead the offense as a ball handler, if he was called upon off the bench or something along those lines. So, you know, I think, there is a lot of room for optimism. We did see some good things, but we have to be realistic. He only shot whatever, like 24% from three last year. Didn't really stand out even when he was with the herd, like in G league or it, he never played summer league. So just in like G league minutes, he wasn't super duper impressive. Um, so if I was to expect one thing, I'm not going to look to him as being like the next guy and the next big addition, just because with the injury history and how much he does it's kind of tough to quantify that. Um, but I, I think it's realistic to, hope that he'll play more games and just given how deep the roster is he won't be called upon right away from the get-go to play huge minutes which should help him as well yeah it's it's also kind of intriguing i think especially for him given the fact that the bucks don't really have they didn't draft a rookie this year or anything so he's kind of he seems like the only guy on the roster who still sort of has some level of intrigue of what he could be because i feel like we've we've DJ Wilson maybe as well, but we saw like a good idea of what he might be last year, but I still feel like there's just so much room for us to learn more about who Dante even will be as a player in the NBA that he's really the only guy that I, f- I feel like I'm still a little in the dark on, on what he's going to be able to do. Yeah. I kind of feel like if we're looking to get a real idea and maybe coach Bud is thinking the same as well, but I probably wouldn't throw him in the starting lineup right away. And 
just because one size wise, I'm not sure if that makes sense. But two, I would be interested to see if there are more substitute heavy lineups, how he would thrive in that, like with a greater role, because like you said, he worked well in transition with like a lot of the other starters, but how does he function when there's less attention diverted elsewhere? Like, but the talent you're playing against isn't as great as the starting lineup for the other team, for example. So I think there's a lot of interesting ways this season could go. Yeah, you make a really great point. I think that actually is also going to be one of the most intriguing subplots of this year is Bud would lean on those Brogdon plus bench lineups so heavily last year to kind of close out quarters. Who's going to be the guy leading those? Is he going to put in Chris Middleton and have him sort of stagger the minutes that way so that he's sort of the primary creator? Is he going to see what Bledsoe can do against some of that substandard uh, competition? Um, or is that a place, like you said, where Dante is going to have to little chance to do a little bit more of it, of the, of the playmaking, if that's a role that they envision for him, maybe that, maybe they'll George Hill too. Yeah. And, and we should note, uh, Kyle did put down a couple of answers for these questions. Kyle does see, and maybe, maybe I'm putting words in his mouth, but he did write NBA starting role player. Now to me, that's reads top 25 player potential all-star, but maybe I'm reading that wrong from Kyle. Uh, no, I just saw that too. Yeah. Yeah. That seems right. So top twenty, so Kyle Carr on the record, top twenty-five and um, all-star, one all-star appearance at least, minimum. Yep. Okay, that is perfect. All right, let's move on and talk a little bit about some of the uh, more prominent players on the Bucks roster. Let's. uh, This is from Old Resorter. Uh, Quick and simple. What will Giannis's free throw percentage and three-point percentage be this upcoming season? Just to set the table for this, Riley. So last year. Uh, overall, he shot Giannis shot 25.6% from deep on 2.8 attempts per game, 72.9% from the free throw line. That was uh, nearly the row at lowest uh, of his career since his, his rookie year where he was around like 68%. Then there was one year where he was at around 724 but obviously highest volume ever in, from both the free throw line and the three-point line. So uh, what what numbers did you have for those? I So I kind of looked into it as well, and to me, I'm not very optimistic that either is going to improve because I want to put a positive spin on it. I said 75% from the free throw line and then 26% from three, just because I think we're going to see this upcoming year. One, the system's not going to change a lot. Two, he shot so poorly last year and still won the MVP award. And three, when he said heading into the offseason that he was going into next year with a guard mentality. I didn't read that as like any sort of changes to his perimeter game. I saw that more as focusing on, yes, he's still going to go inside, but he's going to be looking a lot more for kicking the ball out to, you know, teammates or trying to find ways to kind of break down the defense that way. So I'm thinking he's going to improve a little bit and I more optimistic on the free throw percentage because he knows how important that is. And he's going to be taking a lot more free throws ideally than he is three points, uh, three point attempts. But I don't see either being like this massive correction, especially if he's reworking a shot for like another season in a row with Kyle Korver or whoever else they have. So um, he will <laughs> still take them, but I don't expect either to rise by like massive amounts. Yeah. I had, I had literally put 75% as well on, on the free throw. Obviously you'd love to see that get up a little bit higher. The struggles in the playoffs really seem to be real for him from the free throw line. A lot of chatter about his improvement from the three-point line. Uh, just if you look at the numbers, he shot 31.5% from deep after the All-Star break, 32.7% from deep in the playoffs. So I'm not quite sure that those numbers are going to hold up over a whole season, um, but I had gone a little bit more optimistic and thought that 30% uh, might be realistic for him from deep. Uh, he's, I, he's still going to get those shots all the time. Uh, I think other teams are still going to give him that. I'm curious if he's going to eat into some of his three-point attempts at all with his talk about trying to get a mid-range game or whatever. 
Um, after after last year, he had said those to said some of those comments to Eric Name. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that folds out. But those were kind of the numbers that I pegged it at. Um, so I, I, you and I are kind of in line. You just maybe a, a slightly more, you could say, pessimistic or realistic uh, about his three point percentage. Yeah, I think there were times last year, like when he had a couple of games where he actually made a couple of threes in a row, and he obviously like enjoyed it, but. Like you said, I, I totally forgot about him talking about mid-range too, which I'm surprised we didn't talk more cringe about that comment coming out. But um, I, I think it's unrealistic to expect him to have such a great year doing what he did. And then, yes, he's probably working on it a lot, but to spend another offseason working on it, I think, I, I don't know if that's just going to fix it overnight. I think there's still a lot of worm to go, but he is going to have the green light. And hopefully mentality wise, he's not going to be, because even last year he still hitched and he would be like, I don't know if I should take this shot. Um, you could kind of see on his face. So hopefully if not the percentage, then just the mentality improves this coming season. Then after that, we'll see where it goes. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, the next question that we have here. This is from old resorter. This one was interesting. So the Draymond green, um, just on an extension with the Warriors. So it basically works out to like a four year, $100 million extension. Uh, he wanted us to compare and contrast that with the Brogdon and Middleton deals from the Bucks' point of view and also from the just an overall market perspective. So just to set the stage, Malcolm Brogdon, of course, got that four year, I believe it was $84 million extension from the Pacers. Chris Middleton, the five year, $178 million. Yep. But yeah, yep, $178 million. So uh, clearly, the, the Middleton one was just a little bit less than the max. The the Brogdon one was you know four year eighty four. So honestly, getting pretty close to those Draymond Green numbers. So, what was uh, I guess maybe some of your initial thoughts when you thought about this question comparing that that Green extension to uh, the Brogdon Middleton? The way that I kind of looked at it was it it's so difficult to get a grasp just because the places that these two franchises are at is so radically different. Um, and in a way, you can kind of look at both draymond and chris in that they're both like probably not worth the amount of money they ended up getting or the number of years that they got like in a true market which you can kind of argue about that maybe less so for draymond but i'm not sure if malcolm comes into this but because the bucks are at a place where they're trying to compete right now still um and it warriors are kind of off ramping a little bit like let's see what our original three guys and you know whoever else we can fit around them let's see how they do um I kind of looked at it as both of them are overpays, but necessary for what each team wants to do. And maybe um, if both of those guys get to the open market, they also would get similar deals. Maybe not though, because as we discussed, at least with Chris Middleton, he's definitely, there still are flaws to his game. Um, And I think that's similar for Draymond 29 going on 30 and kind of seeing where his game evolves from here. But I I would say it's difficult to compare the Malcolm deal uh, because that was more so, longer term thinking whereas it feels like the warriors are like they've won their number of championships and whatever comes now at least they'll have their core guys and then kind of ride that out so um i understand the mentality from the warriors and i think that's a really expensive contract for draymond but you can kind of get both where they and the bucks for what their objectives are we're going for yeah i i think i think the brogdon one does feel a little bit more like oranges in this apples comparison um especially because he was this is basically his first payday he was a restricted free agent, um, so he's Ed clearly was kind of looking for maybe a slightly different role if he wanted to play point guard. Uh, I think Chris Middleton and Draymond Green kind of we know what they are at this point. So uh, they're also really interesting comparisons both together. Their, their careers, I would say, are pr- probably 
followed a pretty similar trajectory, in, at least in terms of contracts, both second round picks. Uh, they're around the same age. Chris Middleton is, is basically one year younger or a year and a half younger than Draymond Green. Um, but both sort of signed contracts before the cap spike. So they were underpaid for all these years. And now they had these these deals coming up. And uh, Chris Middleton obviously wanted a, to get a, a big deal. And uh, he got it from the Bucks. And Draymond Green, it, it seemed like people thought that he left – I, I don't know. I, could, I couldn't quite tell what the chatter was. I didn't get a great chance to look at all through Twitter when this came through or anything. Um, it seemed like maybe he left a little bit of money on the table, just given the fact that next year's free agency, uh, free agent crop is just so small. Um, but I think there's really interesting questions about how his game is going to age going forward. You know, that this deal might look pretty gnarly by the end of it. Uh, just if, just given he's a guy who basically doesn't shoot at all and, and relies on, on some of his defensive athleticism and, and preternatural ability and intelligence on that end. I'm really curious to see how he ages. Uh, Chris Middleton, it seems like, I mean, he, he kind of has the skill set that let, I think is just going to age completely properly. I, I just like severe, he already has sort of an old man game. It seems like he's had like almost his whole career. So I don't really see that changing a whole lot. Um, so it, I guess when you think about it that way, um, I think the the Draymond Green just seems like from a, a market perspective, probably a little bit better of a deal, just given the fact that I think he adds um, the, sh- the shooting obviously uh, is not really there. But I just think on, on the defensive end, he seems like even more pivotal to what that team does. He's like, it seems like he is, he's more pivotal to what the Warriors are and like unlocking the full Warriors potential than what Chris Middleton is to what the Bucks do. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, and I, I think you have to kind of go back, like, the reason the death lineup came around, to the so-called death lineup, was because you could fit Draymond in there, um, and he was so versatile that he could work around a lot of different guys and allow them to go for that smaller lineup to really blow teams off the court. Um, and so I agree that it, it it's tough er with him but even then like last year we were kind of throughout the regular season not we but like the general zeitgeist was like oh i don't dream it's like not doing great and it's about to be on the wrong side of 30 like what does that all mean and then he ended up seemingly playing himself back into shape and you know dominating in the playoffs for example so um i think it'll probably end up looking like an overpay but you know for both the Bucks and for the Warriors, just because they still have goals in the short term, you're willing to deal with that back end. Um, you know, the 25 million might not look good for Draymond at the back end, but if you get two good seasons out of them and maybe two more cracks at a title with the, you know, with Clay and Steph, who you also are end up paying, um, it's really tough to replicate that by letting Draymond go. Um, and I think that's similar for Milwaukee as well with Chris Middleton and. You know, as good as Malcolm Brogdon is, I think pretty much everybody can agree that if you're paying him almost like, you know, if it was a hundred million dollars, which I think for the caliber of player Malcolm Brogdon is, is kind of similar between him and Draymond. I think you could say for Milwaukee, that's probably a luxury too much that they can't afford, especially with the uncertainty surrounding um, Giannis, which isn't so much the case in Golden State with Steph and Clay already signed up. Yeah, great points. All right, let's, in the interest of time, we'll move on. So this one is from obviously our, our colleague, Brian. Bucks film room. And I, I forgot to mention that in terms of the, the what could the complimentary pieces that we were talking about before improve upon, absolutely keep listening to Brian's podcast. He's doing player preview pods basically throughout the summer leading up to the season. Uh, really interesting stuff there. Those those, those come out on, on Thursdays. So make sure you're subscribed to the Brew Hoop podcast feed because those are always enlightening and informative for me too. But 
Um, his question, simple one, but thought provoking and actually interesting. Who is the Bucks' third best player? So, who? What were you thinking for that, Riley? So I so because this question is like really wide open, and shout out to Brian for that. It, it kind of leads to interesting discussions, but. I was like, if it's just in this style of play, then I think you have to go for Brooke just because of what he allows the Bucks to do on both ends, whether that be dropping back and being the staunch guy in the middle defensively or being a total like unicorn offensively with this three-point shooting. But if this question was worded the other way and said like in a general sense, which player is more valuable, I might even say Eric might still be more valuable just because there's a on this team, there's a dearth of legitimate ball handlers. And while you don't need a ton of them for a playoff roster, given how much talent there is, they are still sort of necessary. And I think his skills, while he might be a little bit smaller and yes, he's aging and all those sorts of things, but what he can do defensively and his more all around package on offense, I think he probably has more value around the league. Whereas, you know, if you stick Brooke on a random, you know, seller dweller team in the Eastern conference, like, yes, it's, it's, cool what he does but it might be almost like a little gimmicky you know if you don't have it built in the right way with the right kind of guys around whereas i think eric has more of a claim to be a better all-around player who can fit in a lot more different systems so it, it kind of depends eye of the beholder kind of situation yeah you stated very eloquently basically exactly what i was thinking when uh, when when this question came up um so yeah i i, I think it's sort of like an ob- objective like we're looking at the roster overall it does seem like i would tend to edge toward bledsoe that's who who kyle had also submitted as well was bledsoe as the the bucks third best player in terms of how pivotal they are to the team i would lean a little bit more towards brooke i think he but he could almost be have a slight argument for second potentially just given his defensive necessity on that end um which will actually be a i'll be really interested to see how that holds up this next season um with his brother in there if he's able to be a facsimile of that but yeah, I, I I just think it is Bledsoe. I'm on the record as thinking I just still have a lot of faith in Bledsoe. I think that his ability to finish at the rim is incredibly underrated. And like the fact that was such a huge, huge part of, of the Bucks' offense this last year. I mean, more, a higher percentage of their, I believe it was like a higher percentage of their shots um, came at the rim than from three. And those are, you know, on, honestly, the most efficient shots that you can get in the game. And he finishes them at a rate that is almost unparalleled for a guy that small and that size um, and really, really amazing among guards. So I don't think that that's just going to go away. I think that's such a huge part of, of what this Bucks team is. And, um, you know, his, his shot is mercurial. His performance in the playoffs is mercurial. Uh, but I, I would still tend to lead towards Bledsoe in that regard. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, both of them are super valuable defensively, but when I kind of th- think about basketball like so the way i think about brook defends a zone like a specific area whereas eric is a little more specialized and he defends a player right so like how many big men and they're obviously a lot of talented big men but the era of like posting up and banging down low um is dead for all intents and purposes for the most (laughs) part and so the way that you kind of think about it is like, it's really dependent on how mobile Brooke is and how good he is at reading defenses, which he really is. And that's, you know, super great. And it allows Giannis kind of to step back a little bit, but um, I think it's critical to think about the fact that Eric, if you really need, because there are a lot more premier guards in the league than there are premier centers. I think there's so much more value to 
either whether he's funneling or specifically shutting guys down, attacking, you know, or hitting them right at the point of attack, right where like the screen is. I think that is underrated insofar as it lets the rest of the defense kind of take a breath and it gives them just that split second delay where they can kind of read. And I think in a way, Eric and Brooke function well together because Eric causes a little bit of hesitation from a pick and roll, which allows Brooke to kind of drop back and properly read the situation, you know, nine times out of 10 and contest the shot. So I would say if you don't have Eric, it probably becomes a little bit more difficult because now Brooke's not facing 1.5 guys. He's facing two full-fledged guys coming right at him. And if you don't have that, then, you know, it's going to be a problem for the defense as a whole. So I, I would throw that in there as well, valuing the two. And in general, I would agree with you and Kyle that Eric is probably number three. You can make a decent case for Brooke, um, but the top four are pretty much set and they have been since last season as well. Yeah, excellent point between the, the synergy between those two on the pick and roll and defending it. Uh, let's move on to a little broader question here. This is from Old Resorter. There's a couple layers to this, uh, but let's let's just start with the, on the high level. Uh, what would you rank Coach Bud in terms of the head 30 head coaches right now was there was there a, a slot that you had put him in riley no so i i kind of like went through all the coaching list um <clears throat> excuse me and i had seen uh in a couple of this being like uh i don't even know some of the names like um i think doc rivers was ahead of him there was just like like nate mcmillan was ahead of him a whole bunch of stuff so i would say right now he's probably top five in my opinion um and if that's only because he did the proper job of seeing the tools he had at hand. He saw the big tool, the big hammer they had, which was Giannis, and building around that in a way that led you to 60 wins. So I would say he's top five, but then, as I'm sure we'll discuss right now, once you get into the playoffs, just, you know, the first two rounds wasn't that big of a deal, but once we got to crunch time against the Raptors, there seemed to be a little bit of slow on the uptake getting to critical changes that needed to be made to save the series and so that kind of dropped them so i'm not sure somewhere between top five and top ten maybe like six or seven um but you look at the rest of the coaches and there, there aren't they're either new names or not that impressive coaches still in place a lot around the league and so that helps boost his ranking a little bit so the playoffs for you did affect his ranking because that was another part of old resorters question yeah i would say so just it, it, i think it's difficult it's hard for me as like a general fan because i never played basketball i don't really get the x's and o's like i try to follow what brian puts out there and i find a lot of value in that but um i think there's some ways that people who have played the sports in a more organized fashion see the game than i do and so you know it's tough for me to compare him versus like a brad stevens but it, even just like something as simple as we need to get Nikola Mirotic out for this next game, where it's kind of like, well, well, we'll try him again in the starting lineup and see how it goes this time. Well, it didn't work well that game. Maybe we'll try it one more time and see how it goes. Cause we have two game or we have a game lead here. So we can just kind of experiment. Whereas um, once you kind of see things tottering, I would like to ideally see a little bit more of a change in approach. But even then I can kind of understand because even in the Boston series, we got smacked in the mouth in game one and then the team came back and totally romped over the Celtics. So it's tough for me to justify one or the other, but I think there were some ways in which you could have seen some changes. What those were, it's kind of beyond me. I'm a little bit too much a simpleton to, you know, advise coach, Bud if he calls me up or anything like that, but I, I would say you have to keep that in mind when thinking about how he is compared to other coaches in the league. Yeah. Fellow simpleton over here when it comes to evaluating coaches, uh, I try and absorb what I can, but uh, so, okay, I'm going to – I probably have him around the – I might have him ranked a little bit higher than you, but um, if you don't mind, I'm going to go through I, – I just wrote down – I looked through the list of coaches 
and I wrote down ones who I thought could be either in the same stratosphere or above him. So I'm gonna I'm gonna list some names, and then you're gonna tell me if you have Bud above or below him. Okay. Okay. Well, the, I'm gonna just do the, Popovich. We can agree he's probably number one, right? Yep, I would say yeah, so. Okay. All right. So then, what about Brad Stevens? I would say yes, um, with an asterisk because he got smacked by you know Bud's system last season, but. How much of that was the fact that Kyrie was a total tire fire, like you know, just dumpster on fire kind of situation on the court? So um, I think maybe Stevens still edges him out, but it's not nearly as wide of a golf as people are making it seem a year ago. Okay. What about Kenny Atkinson? Um, Man, see, this is – it's so hard for me. I, this is why I kind of have him in like a nebulous top five. Cause, yeah. Because Kenny, what he did with like – not essentially role players, but kind of sort of like it was just this piecemeal roster that Brooklyn's been putting together over the seasons. And yet they were relatively successful and were able to get back into the playoffs. Um, so maybe slightly ahead, but another asterisk, like how does it work with Kyrie? Does he befall the same fates that Brad Stevens dealt with last year? I think that's an open question. But yeah, so so I if you want a definitive answer, I would say Bud's still above Kenny um, to be determined. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think as per usual, when you do these rankings, it's like the tier system makes it a lot easier to kind of get get across what you're trying to get with these people. You, you pick a tier, you have like four people in it. And you're like, yeah, this is like pretty interchangeable. Um, but this is more fun. Uh, and Kenny Atkinson, I think we'll learn a lot about him because he finally has expectations. Um, and good, <laughs> That's a good, good way players. to put it. Yeah. Good way to put uh, it. <clears throat> what about Rick Carlisle? Oh, man. Uh, I would put bud above him um if only because i think i I think isn't rick carlisle like notorious for being sort of a hard ass on his players Um, yeah which is fine because he's a really good coach and he's shown in the past that he knows how to coach and has gotten a championship but i do wonder if bud might edge him out if not on x's and o's then simply on being a better like manager of people personality wise and I think in the modern NBA, you don't have to be everybody's best friend, but you can't be Jim Boylan in Chicago either. Like there, there has to be some sort of middle ground. And I think if you say dead heats, just strategic wise between those two guys, um, you might have to give Bud an edge just for people, you know, people power, so to say. Yeah, agreed. All right. What about Mike Malone? I would also put Bud above him. Um he's kind of similar to Kenny Atkinson where like they have higher expectations because of having Jokic and Gary Harris and Jamal Murray, like, you know, a couple of higher end guys, but they're also still the Denver nuggets. And so, you know, what kind of realistic expectations are you dealing with? But I, I think it, they're almost like very similar in a way because they both deal with big men that sh- totally shatter the norms of what to expect yeah. in 2019. And so, they might be even at a dead heat. I think also Malone might also be a notorious hard ass, but he's a hard ass that got his team to second seed in the Western conference last year, which should not be discounted. So maybe this is where we get same if slightly below Mike Malone, which is totally different from where I began on that question. Um, But this is probably the cutoff point where everybody after the fact is like, ah, maybe not. What did you, do you have Steve Kerr above him? 
Oh, so this is like totally sacrilegious. Now, this is the opposite <laughs> of Rick Carlisle insofar as like the most player-friendly coach you could imagine. And I don't want to be like a disrespectful guy who's like, oh, what has he even done? Like he's just had like, like he had to manage a lot of personalities. I would say though that somehow he got outcoached by Nick Nurse last year. Not so much outcoached because KD went down, obviously, and that's, you know, definitely going to change the prospects for an entire series. But um, I'm not saying Coach Kerr is a fraud, but I'm not saying he's the greatest <laughs> coach of all time either. Like, I'm trying to find, like, a middle ground here. I'm not trying to be super sacrilegious. I think he's a good coach, but maybe Bud might be ahead of him. But when you have two of the greatest shooters of all time and whatever Draymond is doing – it's kind of i think it would be tough to mess that up which to his credit he hasn't and so he should get ranked for that but i would say but above coach kerr it's really funny that he um played for phil jackson and now i feel like he's gonna have sort of the same stink like well he just had really good players um that's why he won you know yeah that's the thing like i i don't really want to buy into that all that much like there is an art form to balancing having those many players especially mm-hmm. again in basketball where it's like the possessions that are available for guys to make an impact are so limited. Um, so in that regard, he should get a lot of rank, uh, you know, a lot of good marks for that, but X's and O's wise, I think I've seen like video of the elevators player, wherever the hell it is, where like <laughs> they set up two guys screening at the top of the key to free up a shooter. I think I've seen replays of that, like showing his mastery of the game a billion times since the Warriors became the Warriors. So I have to see a little bit more before I uh, declare him greatest coach in the league. Uh, um, all right. I'm going to do one more and then I'm going to lump a bunch in. Um, what about Nick nurse? Now, if we remember from our, uh, postmortem on the Toronto Raptors series, everybody remembers, what did I say? Did I say he coaches like a dumb person? I believe that was before the series began. Um, and I had to take that back because he outcoached, Bud. I still think Bud might be, be a better coach and he's going to have a hell of a test on his hands without Kawhi Um, and so I would say Bud's still above him even though he did get the better of the Bucks this past playoff series but I am curious if you don't have newly anointed greatest player on the earth Kawhi Leonard how what he's able to do but he should be given marks for having or you know a good grade for being willing to like stick different bench guys out there to kind of ride the hot hand, which Bud did not, but overall I would still say Bud above him. All right. And then I'm going to list off a bunch here and you let me know if you think any of them are above Bud. Okay. Uh, Mike D'Antoni, Doc Rivers, Eric Spolstra, Quinn Snyder, Terry Stotts. I'm going to say no on all of those guys. Actually. I think all of them have done good jobs with their teams, but I would not say any of those guys are like, and it's tough with Spolstra because he's kind of like the curvane, except he might be a little bit more XO, X and an O heavy. But I would say in general, all those guys might be a slight step below. Um, and I would be curious what the head-to-head record between all those coaches are, but I would almost guarantee that Mike Budenholzer probably has a better record against those guys than they do against him. So I would say he's atop that pile of coaches. Okay. So it sounds like he's the top five for you. Yeah, like I said, I, I think top five in – Again, with this stuff, it's so hard being somebody who has no idea what goes on like coaching <laughs> basketball whatsoever. But um, I think there could be legitimate arguments that might put him at like six or seven if you know you put the case the right way. But I would say he's definitely top five, top six coach in the league for sure. Okay. All right, let's move on. Do you, this is from retired janitor. Uh, shout out the Brew Hoop comments section. 
OG people who have been there forever. Um, you and Old Resorter, thank you so much. Uh, do you see the team making a big trade before the deadline? Um, I said yes, actually. And so big trade, what does that mean, right? But I would say yeah. anywhere where you're getting a guy who's like making, I kind of look at this almost like dollar value wise because I'm not sure how many guys who are on the come up, the Bucks are be able to get the assets together. But I think the fact that they got those Pacers picks would seem to signal that they're loading up to try and make one more like addition midseason. Now, whether that be a guy making like 15, 16, 17 million, um, I think that's probably realistic. So I do expect them to make a trade. Um, I don't know who's going to go out. I don't know who the odd man out is going to be, but they have some salary to move around that they could send on a trade, whether that be Urson or um, I don't think they're going to trade Chris. I think that would be difficult to do, but like, People have been talking about, you know, can we move Eric Bledsoe for a long time? Maybe once we get uh, past the moratorium where you can trade him, maybe they're kind of interested in that. But um, I do see them making a move at some point, probably. Yeah, same here. I, I think I think they got some of those assets in the war chest to try and make a move. And we all kind of went into this summer and they like they got their players and they didn't get a, a surefire replacement for Malcolm Brogdon. And, and I said, all right, well, I'm giving it an, kind of an incomplete until we see what it is that Horst is going to do with, with those picks. And um, I tend to think he's going to try and make a move this season. Who knows how aggressive they'll be? Who knows how, quote unquote, big that trade will be? Uh, but I, I think they'll probably be in the market looking for for some sort of move before when the season comes. I'll actually be kind of interested because Horst has made these kind of early season moves. You know, the year before he got Bledsoe. Uh, then the next year he got he dumped off John Henson and got back George Hill. So he's always had, he at least so far in his tenure he's had a, a predilection to make like some sort of early season move, which I kind of like because it doesn't feel like all the the heat of, of the trade deadline is is drumming up value for these guys. So we'll see. Maybe he'll make his move sooner rather than later, like you said. Maybe once that moratorium uh, period ends on Eric Bledsoe. He's going to look at all those tweets of everybody mocking him for being hashtag cap expert after the 700,000 trade exception debacle that will assuredly not die from now until the heat death of the universe. But like, you know, last season, even just something as simple as, and I think a lot of people forget it, like the Jody Meeks trade to acquire yeah. those second round better position, second round pick from the, you know, wizards that allowed them to eventually acquire Nikola Miritich. So maybe he doesn't have as much flexibility as he did a year ago, but I, I would be shocked. And I think there's, there was a follow-up question from old resort or over under on how many deals the bucks will make prior to the trade deadline. I think he could put it at like 1.5 and I would take the over on that. If only because now that you have like dragon bender on like this super non-guaranteed deal and you have a couple of guys like Sterling Brown and DJ Wilson who are, kind of approaching what are we going to do with those guys next for their next deal territory. I would not be surprised if we see moving the chairs on the deck just to see maybe there's like, you know, situations change in other markets all the time. Maybe a veteran becomes available that the Bucks see as valuable for them. Um, so I would be shocked if the Bucks require throughout the season on the trade front. Yeah, you make a great point. And the, the roster being full and um, cap sheet being being what it is might be less likely he'll make those minor moves, but I was totally fine with him. I, I think he, he likes to do that sort of stuff giving, you know, goes to the, goes to the sad sack wizards and says, give us your tired, your poor, your over bloated contracts and we'll take them in and give us second round picks in exchange for him. And uh, we'll see, hopefully he does some of the, that stuff this next year too and, and extracts value for on the very margins. So this is a big one. This is from at big avocado, Steve Fox on Twitter. Hell of a Would Twitter be, name. Shout out Big Avocado. Fantastic. Yeah, at really Big good. Avocado. Yeah, no small, no room for small avocados here. 
uh, or in Steve's life. So would you would CP3 make sense on the Bucks? So I heard Kevin O'Connor talking about this on the Ringer podcast. Uh, he might have been with Bill Simmons. I kind I kind of cringed reflexively at it. So I, I'm I'm kind of against it. I just don't really see him aging well. His contract is kind of too bloated for me. Uh, I don't really feel like he adds a whole bunch of more significant value. I don't think he adds more to value defensively than Eric Bledsoe. Certainly, he's a much better shooter, but I just don't really see him as the guy who you would want to bet your bottom dollar on to try and take this team over the top. Yeah, I uh, I want nothing to do with him. And it's, it's like both current and future, whereas if you trade for him, which I mean, like my, my spine tingles just thinking about it in a <laughs> negative way, in like the most negative way possible. If you trade for him, maybe you get like this season, okay, production, and maybe like if you really squint and pray really hard next season as well. But after that, I can't see it going all that well. And if he's owed, I think it's like 37, 39, 41, and 44 oh. million over the coming years. I mean, that's just God awful. I just, I can't even fathom that. So I think if the Bucks acquired him today, he would be surefire the Bucks' second best player just because of what he can do orchestrating an offense. But we don't need a guy who necessarily best attributes is the fact that he can quarterback an offense and he's like this really good facilitator because ideally the ball is either moving around or it's ending up in Giannis's hands and hopefully Giannis rises to the occasion and becomes a better playmaker. But I would say on the court, there's those aspects and then off the court as well. Like, you know, he doesn't seem like the most fun guy to play with. And that's one thing if he's, you know, one of the top 10 players in the league and kind of, you just get over it because it is what it is. But as he continues to deteriorate, if his mentality doesn't like, is Giannis going to be like, Oh, I would love to play the next, you know, two seasons here, totally hamstrung by the anchor that is Chris wall, Chris Paul's contract and his encore production. So, and, and also on top of all that, the health issues as well. I think he's only played 60 plus games like three years ago. And even then it's kind of been downward trend overall. And what maybe he gets through a, regular season if you you know load manage but then the playoffs like we've seen he sunk the rocket season by getting injured like not his fault but that's just the reality of the kind of player he is now so i think all that combines together that i wouldn't go for it i understand people thinking you got to maximize every shot you got right now but i'm not sure if now is the time to go for it agreed he also seems in direct violation of the um, no assholes policy that the bucks had last year he kind of see he kind of seems like he would be awful to play with yeah i think if like the if Giannis told the Bucks, God forbid this happens, but if he told him like, oh yeah, I'm definitely leaving like after this next season, and I, I still wouldn't even go for Chris Paul, but then that's when he start getting reckless, like we don't even care. Everything you have to do to like try and assemble any tiny bit of talent better to get more out of this one season. But since the Bucks aren't in that situation right now, I don't see the need to bring in somebody who might ruin the culture a little bit, um, even if he is still a great player and will be for the next season or two. Yeah, that's when you like try and see if Alex Antetokounmpo can reclassify up oh a grade God. and then also see if you can push the um, high school entry re-entry class to like an earlier draft so that the Bucks would be able to get right on that train. I believe the Lopez brothers have an older brother, which, and don't take me as fast as saying <laughs> this, but I believe he was at a Bucks game this past season and they did like a shot of him in the crowd. I swear to God, he looked like Steven Seagal. Like he had, it seemed like he had like the beard, the hair and the sunglasses in the darkened stands. So I think if we're going to go for the all brother lineup, then we might as well take a good hard look at whatever the other Lopez's name and bring him in as well over Chris Paul. That is, that is an excellent point. Speaking of um, the Lopez, Robin Lopez of course came in and um, 
Southern uh, Marxist two asks, how is the defense going to be different in 2019-20? In particular, how might the addition of Robin Lopez help and the loss of Brogdon hurt? I guess upon first blush, I I just don't see the defense shifting a whole lot. Uh, I, even in the playoffs, the defense wasn't really the huge issue. Um, I think the really Robin Lopez, I, th- I think, will kind of basically fill the same role that his brother does. I'm most fascinated to see if teams now, after a full year, kind of trying to uh, look at this defense and diagnose it. We, of course, saw the the ill-fated Jason Kidd defense fall off a cliff in its second year. So I'm curious if the defense, uh, I don't think it's going to change very much, but I'm curious how teams might try to attack it going forward. Yeah, I don't like envision there being radical changes and i'm you know i'm trying to think of who like the main backup centers were last year so like you know we kind of went through whether it be thon maker john henson for a little bit urson here or there like the jason smith era but really i think if anything all it'll do is allow the substitutes to play in a very similar system to the starters whereas you know once you downgrade to thon maker you can kind of keep a similar philosophy but the you know results might not exactly be the same so i think overall like body of work throughout an entire game we might even see a little bit of improvement and like malcolm was a good defender but i'm not sure if you know i think this can probably be argued one way or other but i'm not sure if he was a great defender per se just because he is athletic but maybe not in the ways that like really impact defensively speaking and he's obviously an intelligent guy and that's helpful but if you are able to kind of you lose him, but you have like Sterling Brown step, for example, who we think is a generally a pretty good defender. And then you get to the substitutes and it's like, yes, we lose Brooke Lopez, but then we have Robin who does essentially the same thing defensively. I could see actually the defense improving a little bit more than retracting overall. So that's kind of my take on it, but though I'm, you know, more than welcome to probably be proven wrong once the season gets here. Here's a, interesting. The old resorter had this question. I think we've talked about this and I think we'll be talking about it for this maybe potentially this entire year depending on how much teams try to employ it but will the quote wall stymie the bucks this season will teams learn from toronto's wall and give the bucks fits that obviously sort of alluding to the fact that toronto used this wall of defenders to prevent milwaukee from being able to to finish at the rim rim properly on defense defense and turned our offense into an absolute uh dumpster fire i i'm really interested to see how this goes i i think one of the things that is certainly underrated about the the Toronto wall. I mean, they played, they moved, they were an incredible defense, like moved in insane, insanely well, like incredibly synergistic. It was really awesome, like amazing defense to watch. It was awful at the time, but like the fact that they were able to absolutely destroy Milwaukee's offense is pretty incredible. I don't think it will stymie them, especially not in the regular season. And I'm not sure how many teams defensively even have the personnel to pull it off. Uh, but I think one of the things that even when teams would stack the box or whatever in the regular season last year, it felt like there was always some barrage of threes ready to go. And then when like when the Bucks would hit two or three in a row, it was like the, the wall just comes tumbling down and it all opens right back up. And it felt like that just never happened in that Toronto series. Yeah, I would say we can't really overreact. And really, in a way, I kind of hope that teams try to throw it at the Bucks more often, if only because it'll give Giannis more reps to work out how do you get around this per se. Because if I'm looking at next season, this is maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm expecting Eastern Conference Finals, right? And all things considered, unless injuries happen, which, you know, it might, who knows, but assuming the Sixers get there, it's kind of like what kind of defensive system are they going to employ? Cause they're kind of a weird roster as well. But I want Giannis to get comfortable. If not, it's even if it's not a wall, if it's just 
what do you do when multiple defenders are thrown at you while you have a head full of steam? Are you going to power through it or are you going to try and take a second, you know, obviously not a full second, you don't want to just stop play, but are you able to kind of <laughs> recognize the situation and yes, it's a regular season game. Yes, you always want to win, but can you take those opportunities to kind of learn and get a better feel for what does this feel like in game action when a defender kind of when defenses throw themselves at me like this? How do I get around that? So I would agree. I don't want to overreact and be like, oh God, the wall is going to just stop the Bucks. Like the the threes just didn't fall in the Toronto series, which was what made it so flabbergasting and frustrating was like every single game be like, please make a shot, please make a shot, please make a shot. And nobody seemed able really to do so. So I, I wouldn't expect a lot of deviation and teams might try to do it. But like I said, the personnel is not really good enough. And even if there is good enough personnel, I see that more as a plus, if only as more practice. Like, if you lose that game, what did we learn from this? What can we adjust, and how can we kind of improve to do better in the playoffs if it comes up again? Yeah, great point. I'm really interested to see how that that goes, that works out going forward. So let's do let's do one last question here from Old Resorter before we do some rapid fire ones. Uh, so this is how will the team do vis a vis the three point game? Last year they were second most of the year in three point attempt rate, and in the middle of the pack in terms of three point percentage. How how is that going to shake out? So. I'll just set the stage with um, <clears throat> a couple of stats here before you reply, Riley. So for the Bucks last year, this is from cleaning the glass. So it cuts out heaves at the end of quarters and um, garbage time. So 38.4% of their shots were threes, which was third in the league, just like barely behind Dallas, well behind Houston, who were at number one at 48.6%, which is crazy. Uh, and then if you look as a team, they shot 35.7% from three, which was 16th in the league. So uh, what, what was your first thought to uh, Old Resorters question? I would expect maybe the three-point attempt to actually dial back a little bit. Um, and I don't really have a rhyme or reason for that, but I think that's more so probably one because Giannis is still going to get a ton of touches, a touch, uh, excuse me, a ton of touches inside. And if that's going to be the case, like we discussed earlier, I don't see him really like maybe emphasizing the three as his go-to option. And so we might uh, see a decrease overall. And if the rest of the league kind of continues, like maybe they're not as dominant elsewhere, but everybody can take a lot of threes. Like that's nobody stopping or nothing stopping any team from doing that. So I would say a step back in three-point attempt rate. And I would say in general, maybe you expect a slight step forward overall percentage-wise because I think almost universally across the board for a lot of the players, they had decent three-point shooting years, but I'm not sure outside of like Malcolm, there was anybody who really blew you away with their percentage of actual makes. So I would say slight improvement in the rankings of percentage made, probably a slight drop back just in like per average, like compared to the rest of the league relative wise, step back in three-point tournament, but it'd still be a lot and still be a massive point of the game. But um, I would see kind of that vice versa uh, decrease increase going on. So this was really interesting. I'm not sure if you saw this John Schumann stat. Um, he was, he was pointing out players uh, last year. So there were 129 players who shot better than league average, which was 35.5% on at least 103 point attempts last season. And the Bucks, he lists out how many players are on each team. And I, I kind of thought that, you know, the, the Bucks, like we, this has sort of been the narrative. The Bucks shoot a lot of threes, but they're not like amazing three point shooters. And so I was kind of curious if people may have had down years, if there might be some potential for people to improve next year at all. Uh, and would it surprise you if I told you that Last year, the Bucks had nine 
of those such players who were shot better than league average on at least 100 three-point attempts last season? That would surprise me. And I think maybe I'm suffering from a little bit of recency bias because nobody, none of those nine guys made the same level of shots in the playoff series against the Raptors. Um, <laughs> though it is a long season. And it, it was kind of weird because we're not used to watching a team that's so dominant from three, like just blowing teams off the court with a barrage. But there were so many times where it was like, you know, first half you know if we're up already like 20 points in the second half you kind of cruise with the bench guys who are also hitting so i guess that's surprising but not so outside the lines like wow i can't even believe that at all so it, you know i'll eat my crow i have no idea what i'm talking about obviously retract everything i just said a couple of minutes ago everybody had great se- shooting season last year no no, no. Yeah, look i i thought i thought exactly the same thing i was really surprised by the number that was definitely the best in the league second best was a team with seven and so he lists up what it is for this upcoming season. So basically the Bucks retained five of those such players. They lost four of them. You know, Tony Snell, uh, Nikola Miritich, I'm sure, uh, Malcolm Brogdon, obviously. And then they got back, they brought back in two. So Wesley Matthews and um, Kyle Korver, presumably. So we have, they have seven now, which is t- still tied for tops in the league with the Sacramento Kings and the Detroit Pistons. Um, I, I think I see the three-point attempt rate potentially going a little bit higher just given um, that Malcolm Brogdon was a little more selective with his shot selection. And I feel like Wesley Matthews and Kyle Korver might be more willing to, to launch it up. I don't know how much higher it, it can go or, or will go, uh, but I can see it going just a little bit higher. And um, I kind of, I, I think it's really hard for teams that shoot at that volume to have like a super high three point percentage. Uh, you know, I mean, that's why Houston always, I mean, Houston goes, takes it to extremes, but they're usually around middle of the pack. So I think if you just shoot that much and you're, you, you're sort of instilling that philosophy in their, in your players, they're probably not taking amazing shots. You know, they're like, like Brooke Lopez is, is, isn't like waiting around for an open look to shoot from three. He's like, yeah, I got, you know, I got two inches of space. I'm 40 feet out. Yeah, I can probably make this like. I, I think that sort of philosophy probably lends itself to a three-point percentage that might be a little deflated. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And, it, and like, you know, the one thing that I think we're kind of stepping around with this conversation is it would be literally almost impossible for Dante to shoot only 10% from three <laughs> or the equivalent thereof. <laughs> so I, I think if you can see improvements from him, I, I think you're probably right that, like, I shouldn't go into next season thinking like, oh, well, Pat Connaughts will add like, you know, three, four percentage points. Like Chris Middle said, you know, get back over like near 40% or so. Um, so I think there's probably a lot of wisdom in the way you're thinking about it. I'm just curious, you know, the one thing that I think we also have to keep in mind is like the way the Bucks did it all last season, they didn't really deviate at all. So is there going to be, maybe it's not the wall, but are there different approaches that teams are going to make? And you can already mention it with like, Jason Kidd's defense, it went down the drain second year. So is that going to be something similar they have to deal with? And what does that mean for a three-point percentage, which we can't really answer right now? Yeah, we'll, we'll find that out later. All right, let's do some rapid-fire ones. Retired janitor gave us a bunch here. So let's go quick. Do you think the Bucks will be better next year and why? Jeez, uh, no, I would say <laughs> that's really tough. I say yes because Giannis is – just 24 going on 25 he just got off his first mvp season um you know he's just scratching the surface of the kind of player he's going to be and at the end of the day in basketball there's only five guys out there and when you have the best player in the entire planet you know the sky's the limit at that point so i would say yes based if only on Giannis's improvement and then everybody else kind of maintaining similar levels of production 
Yeah, I agree. I think I think I, I, I leave it all to Giannis, and uh, if he has a bad game, he won't have to wait um, for Thanasis to text him back. He can just ask him post game, <laughs> and he can hype him up. So there's we we also have that added benefit. Um, it, realistically, though, I think they will be a little bit better. I think the fact that Bud will have an all whole offseason. I I think it, I you know we certainly have questions about whether Bud could kind of like make make some adjustments adjustments mid-series i think those questions are going to linger a little bit but like the fact of the matter is is that this guy got hired and like just sat in a cabin with his dudes for like five days in the offseason and like devised the league's best offense and best defense basically um around a guy who's like really singular talent um and now he has a whole offseason and he's stewing on the fact that his his designs got blown up by this team. Like I, I just think he's he's gonna. I I think the second season uh, familiarity with Bud's system, and I think he'll come back with new concepts that will new wrinkles that'll add add to this um, as well. And I think on top of that, real quick, and it was quick, rapid fire, but he has a whole season of buy-in now from everybody, which mm. you know for other guys like Chris Middleton, where there was like kind of like mid-season battle for how he wanted to approach it, like Giannis even like. Yes, Coach Bud did a lot of great things with Atlanta, but it, you know that was you know yesterday, quote unquote. So, so what? How good of a coach was he coming into this season? I think it's really hard to argue with the results. So, I would agree that he has this offseason to plan, and he has all his players now who know this guy knows how to coach in 2019, 2020. You know, in the modern NBA, I can do whatever he needs to, and maybe that'll help kind of specify roles for guys, and there's less kind of like battling midseason to figure out who does what. Hundred percent. They know that he'll get rug burned for them. Yeah. He'll dive on the floor. <laughs> All right, crazy guy. <laughs> Will the team have a breakout player who might be most improved? Who's your candidate? Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say no. I do not expect there to be a breakout player. I think there'll be incremental improvements from a lot of the guys, but I do not see there being anybody that's like you know, blows away from the pack. Like this guy is way beyond anything we expected, which is a strange place to be. But when you have mostly veterans and a couple of guys in their like early to mid twenties, that's just kind of the situation you're in. Yeah. Besides Dante as MIP, I can see here's a guy I had. I think Robin Lopez might be kind of interesting. I feel like he's had to sit on the bulls for years, the crappy bulls and just do random stuff. But the thing I'm most interested in, interested in is that if his like if he's gonna if he does have these sort of skill sets that weren't utilized properly now that he's moving into a different system, I think he has a he has a potential, especially serving as a backline anchor of a defense. Um, I think now that he'll be on he'll be on a better team and maybe be put in some different spots and you know whether we want him to be doing that or not. You know the obviously obvious one is shooting threes, but like. I think I just think there's a lot of potential for him to like break out in ways that he wasn't doing previously because he was just with the Bulls. And I kind of on top of that, I agree with a lot of that. Um, and I think a lot of the things that he's done, like you just said, are trending in the right direction. But if you want, like, you know, this is the easiest pick in the world, but could it get any lower for Dragon Bender? Like, realistically <laughs> speaking, like you have a point. I think there's like four or five different guarantee dates on his contract, and he's like the optimal second draft guy, which was kind of a concept in Vogue a couple of years ago, but where essentially you're trying to pick up the scraps from other teams where they drafted them and just didn't work out for one reason or another. So drag dragon bender could either be God awful as he was in Phoenix, or maybe now that he comes into Milwaukee with like an actual coaching staff and actual like competent organization. And is he just 22 still 21, 22? I can't quite remember off the top of my head. He's young either way. And so 
I don't know what to expect from him, but there had to have been a reason he was such a highly sought after draft prospect a couple of years ago. And I don't know if we should necessarily see the years in Phoenix as like, he's definitely going to be a bust. Obviously the contract is very beneficial to the bucks and who knows where he goes. But if there was going to be anybody in this season, that like totally unproven quantity, he's the guy for sure. Yeah. He turns 22 this year. All right. Most likely player to disappoint. Uh, I would say Chris Middleton, actually, uh, not only because of the Hater. amount of money. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I really, I don't expect it, um, but if there was going to be anybody, just because of how much he's making and the expectations coming off of an all-star appearance last year, um, I would say if anybody, you can't really go in with like high expectations for Eric just because of the playoffs. Like Everybody's kind of sort of all over the place with him for the most part. But I think new expectations, new contracts year that he's just had, I think Chris Middleton is probably most likely to disappoint. Yeah. I, I was thinking him for sure. I think Wesley Matthews potentially, I, he seems like there's not huge expectations as minimum, but I think the fact that he's like a hometown guy kind of could lead to some things where people are expecting more of him. There was kind of the excitement over him potentially being the Brogdon replacement. Uh, so I think he's got some pretty big shoes to fill and I'm not sure how much gas he's got left in the tank. Hopefully he does though. We'll see. Do you see, all right, uh, do you see Giannis at all being a p- possibility coming off an MPC MVP season or do you see no, uh, no problems or at all for him? No, I don't think so. I, I think, um, I think we're all, I, I know at least me, I think I've just, my glasses are like, I strapped the rose tinted glasses to my face. They're not coming off with Giannis. You got your zoom I, freak ons right now. Zoom freak ones yeah. on right now. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, 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 all the time. Um, all right. What about your biggest fear for the coming season? Oh, man. Uh, Giannis talk uh, gets some actual legs, probably, which is everybody's darkest fear and the one that kind of is the harbinger that hangs over this team uh, the entire time that he is here. But um, I'm kind of worried about as we continue to get closer, like he last year was really good at stop talking with Greek media about like, well, you know, if I don't like the milk here, then maybe we'll so see what it's like in LA. And I just, uh, you know, but I don't like big towns, but like, you know, love, love Nike, et cetera, et cetera. So I appreciate that you did that last season, but I would say that's my biggest fear in general. Um, and I can go into an encore one, but I'll give you a chance to respond. Yeah. I, I was having trouble coming up with one and then you said that one and I got a shiver up my spine. So I think that's probably my biggest fear uh, as well. I had just put maybe that the Sixers are able to replicate what Toronto did in last year's postseason. Uh, I just think they could be really scary defensively. Uh, and I, that the Toronto series is still kind of nightmarish for me. So uh, that was something I'm, I'm pretty scared of. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And I think, um, probably like an injury to Chris Middleton would be number two. Like he, he bounced back really well from the hamstring problem a couple of years ago. And I don't anticipate him slipping and tearing his hamstring off his bone, uh, this off season thing, you know, cross fingers on that. But, um, if he's gone, if he goes down for any amount of time, like the math gets a lot more tricky for Milwaukee, just because yeah, as much as everybody likes to talk trash about Chris and the kind of player that he is like, he, you have to acknowledge how much gravity he puts out there when he's on the court. And so if he's goes down, I mean, it's going to get really rough, really quick for Giannis to try and carry the load himself with. He might be capable, but realistically, if he or Eric goes down, that might be a problem long-term. Yep. Also, also good. All right, let's close this one out. Uh, We've got a question here from stone age asking about the win totals. So this was going to do sort of a two part here. So I'm going to, I'm going to shift it to say, I'm going to have you respond over under the current Westgate odds for the Bucks, which is 58 and a half wins. 
And then also, do you have any lingering concerns about uh, Giannis and or potentially like Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez competing in national competition and that potentially hurting the Bucks' potential for wins this next year? So I'm going to take the over, and that is almost exclusively predicated on the fact that the Eastern Conference seems weaker than it was a year ago, whereas last year it was like these top five teams, it could kind of go either way for any of them, where it, and it's just not the case this year. So I, I anticipate them getting probably replicating like 60 wins. I wouldn't be shocked by that. The question about international play is really interesting. Um, I don't know how to quantify that, and I don't follow like – soccer which where national team play is a lot more important and obviously the dynamics of when they play and everything is a lot different but i actually wonder if it might be good for like chris for example because we've seen time and time again that it takes chris a little bit of time to get into the flow of things like once games actually start going again um i I do worry about given how hectic Giannis's schedule is um he I don't think he's like had any sort of like legitimate break this entire offseason. Been like with the shoes coming out, with FIBA coming up, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of worry about how do the Bucks? Is it become more important to load manage for him? Are we going to see his per game minute average drop even more? But I think the team is so talented and the rest of the East so weak that it won't. It'll kind of even out eventually. And I, I say take the over and not too too concerned, but definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah, that's actually a really good point uh, about Chris Middleton and maybe him, it, the international game potentially helping him kind of get into a rhythm. It's uh, it, it, I think it's really fun. Also, I'm I'm just kind of excited for there to probably be both Brook Lope like two bucks on the U.S. team. Like, can, can we just talk about that? That's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the perpetual problem for USA basketball, which they found out this offseason with everybody and their sister jumping off the team. But I, I think – it is really cool, and maybe the World Cup isn't as "quote unquote" prestigious as the Olympics, but I don't really get why not. Like, you know, I think it was Michael read the last book that was on a team USA for like any sort of meaningful competition, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so I, I, I think if those two guys, and I think there's every possibility Chris features, like it's just an opportunity for them to increase their profile and thereby kind of increase their profile for the Bucks as well. So, so it is exciting, and I think even with all the defections, those guys were kind of picked right from the get-go to be on the team. And I think that's a nod to where they both are in their careers and, you know, should be an acknowledgement that, you know, even if they aren't perfect players, they are really high level players and maybe they aren't perfect second stars, but to have a guy like Giannis at the top line, and then to have these other guys who are acknowledged by the national federation, by their peers, et cetera, to be such good players. I think that's, it's really special for Milwaukee to have those guys. Yeah, really cool. And I, I guess I'll, I'll give my response. I'm doing. I'm going to go under, but only because I think that's they're. I'm going to think they're around like 58. I think the team was actually pretty darn healthy last year until the end of the season. Um, they went on a lot of runs. I th- I could Brooke Lopez, all, one of those people who was incredibly healthy. Uh, so I could see maybe an injury this year or something deflating the win total a little bit. But I I don't really see the international play affecting it a whole lot, barring a catastrophe and some sort of injury. I think. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think these guys will be playing basketball anyway. This just like gives a little more organized form to it. Uh, and they'll honestly may be more interesting because they'll get a chance to work out with people who they typically wouldn't work out with. Maybe they'll learn some stuff from them, that kind of stuff. Chris Middleton will get to play in with Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr. Uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff is basically seems unquantifiable and I, it seems really squishy and I don't really know how much to ever read into that kind of stuff, but 
you don't know, could have some sort of benefit and, and good on those guys for uh, for being able to probably be a key part of that team that's playing in the World Cup. And if they come back with a gold medal, we're going to be super disappointed. Or wait, not gold medal. If they don't come back with a World <laughs> Cup championship, I'm going to be super disappointed. So no pressure, guys. Yep, no pressure at all. All right, well, you guys certainly alleviated, alleviated any pressure we had to come up with original topics because uh, Lord knows I, I was plumb out and you guys, all of you delivered wholeheartedly. So thank you so much for all of the wonderful questions that you sent in today. Uh, we'll probably be back in a couple weeks. Um, hopefully Kyle will be able to join us then. We certainly missed him here tonight. I'm sure everyone who's listened to the pod missed him as well. But uh, go to brewhoop.com. Check out all the stuff the, that, that Riley and I are, are doing over there. I think we're it's a little quieter right now, trying to take some time off before we get back into the player preview stuff. But go to brewhoop.com, follow us on Twitter at brewhoop, listen to Brian's podcasts that are coming out on Thursday on this very brewhoop podcast feed. And for Kyle Carr and Riley Feldman, this is Adam Paris. Thanks again for listening. On the streets of old Milwaukee was a young boy walking.